in the year 1050, English politics was balanced on a knife edge. Two men, identical in status and power and influence, ran this country, and they had tried their best to keep everything together. Both men could be seen as the godfathers of the nation. On the one hand, the king, known as Edward the Priest or Edward the Confessor, on the other, the Earl of Wessex Godwin, the most powerful man in the nation. Both men had worked closely together for the best part of Edward's reign so far. Between them, they had sheltered in a version of England that had survived calamity, natural disaster, famine, plague, and economic troubles. They had created an England that was surprisingly robust, that was militarily more powerful than it had ever been before, and that was richer than had ever been seen. They were an effective team, the self-made Englishman who had sold out his country to the Danes and had profited from it, and the exiled son of the most useless king ever. Somehow they worked, somehow they kept the state functioning. But power, ultimately, is always a zero-sum game. Either one has more power or less. Which one of these two men had the most power was going to be decided, and all it took was a spark. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to this particular episode of the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city. This is the second part of a trio of episodes I'm calling a Godfather Trilogy, as they describe the struggle between Edward, King of England, and Godwin, World of Essex, which was to have ramifications that were to last, well, for over a thousand years. Welcome then to Chapter 43, An Ambush in Southwark. So whereas I do like to make all my episodes stand alone, this is the continuance from the previous part, so I'm not going to go over much or anything of what I've said before, we're just going to get straight into the story. Nature reports a vacuum, with Earl Sven having been exiled, his earldom was without a leader, and with Earl Sven having been exiled for killing his cousin Earl Bjorn, his earldom was without a leader. Edward began to fill in the gaps in English politics with people of his own choosing. Normans, Frenchmen. Clearly a French mob was moving into English politics here 16 years before the Norman invasion. Within only two years, the King of England had created one French earl, two Norman Stallers and three Norman Castellans. And a whole bevy of French and European priests began filling clerical positions. The late Earl Bjorn's land, for example, were given to Edward's nephew, a Frenchman called Ralph of Vexine, and Edward was now making his faction a thing of power in England. And this led directly to what set Godwin and Edward on collision course with one another. It started in 1050 and was caused by the death of the then Archbishop of Canterbury. The previous occupant, Isidge, had been sick for a while, And he'd also been a somewhat controversial figure, at least within clerical circles. While he was Archbishop, a position he had probably gained from Godwin, as he and Godwin were both men who had risen in the ranks of Canute's minions, Idzids had sold land belonging to the Archdiocese to Godwin. And tradition says that the Church doesn't give land to secular powers. Secular powers give land to the Church. 
Bottom line, because of this and other factors, it was fair to say that Archbishop Isige was Godman's man, part of his family. His death left the position empty, and some months were spent as the two powerful factions vied for the control of it. The last couple of archbishops had been established by Canute and his faction, the Anglo-Scandinavians, which Godwin seems to have inherited control over. And as such, Godwin would have been expected to have had a say in who gets the title. And, added to that, Godwin had a candidate, a monk called Ethelric, who was a monk living in Canterbury, which was useful. It was also more useful that he was a kinsman of Godwin's. Let's keep it in the family, eh? But Edward was king and the king should decide who his principal priest was, who should be the spiritual head of the nation. And as such, Edward was not going to stand for this Ethelric holding the title. At the great council, the Wittangamont, his wishes won over, and the city was witness to the appointment of Robert, the Bishop of London, to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. This caused much anger in Godwin's camp, with one version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles saying the appointment of this Frenchman was, quote, against God's will, unquote. I mean, at that Wittangamont, Edward did throw Godwin a bone. He had sued his now outlaw kinslaying eldest son forgiven, and he allowed him return on probation. I mean, this being said, Godwin's eldest son was kind of needed to help defend the unstable border with Wales, so yeah. And soon after that, Archbishop Robert travelled to Rome. Now, the reason he did this was each Archbishop of Canterbury had to be given a ceremonial scarf, a pallium. This was worn by every senior Archbishop or Metropolitan to signify their authority over other clerics. The tradition went that the Pope, who was the big cheese clerically, was the only person who could confer the pallium upon the Archbishop of Canterbury and that pallium signified his authority over other bishops. So, Edward now had his man as Archbishop of Canterbury, and Godwin had his rather psychotic son back. Maybe things could get back to normal. But Godwin and his family and their supporters, I honestly believe their idea of normal was gain more power at any available moment. And proof of this is shown in London, and it's now time to talk about one of the minor players in this feud, who was to make things worse. A man called, and I'm not kidding, Spear Havoc. Now when it comes to awesome characters who could only appear in London's history, you do not get much more interesting than Bishop Spear Havoc of London. Or technically he was only Bishop-elect of London, but anyway. So what we do know about this guy is that Spear Havoc had been a monk and then had become an abbot, but he had was more than just a monk. He was well known as an expert goldsmith. His skill with creating religious relics and items out of precious metals was well established nationally. Sure, he may not have been an especially holy man, but he was, you know, a goldsmith, a worker in precious metals. And London was the home of workers in precious metals. He was the ideal candidate, surely. The impression I get, and I admit this is only my impression, is that King Edward saw Spear Havoc as a pragmatic replacement. I think Edward decided to have him be Bishop of London for pragmatic reasons. I think the Godwins persuaded him to allow Spear Havoc hold the job while Archbishop Robert was out of the country travelling to Rome. And I personally think it was Queen Edith who convinced him for a very practical reason. 
Edith, as I described last chapter, was all about making sure her older husband looked the part of a king. And we also know she ordered beautiful jewellery and got stunning gold work made for King Edward. Basically, I think Edith convinced Edward to allow Spearhavoc be Bishop of London so he would have access to London's bullions and gems for the intention to create a new crown for Edward, something more impressive than his existing one, something fit for him as King of England. So Edward agreed, and Spearhavoc became the acting Bishop of London. In all that follows, it's impossible to know how the people of London responded to each of these events and whose side they were on as individuals, what they thought of this epic rivalry about to explode. And please, dear listener, do take on board that in supplying a narrative version of the story of London, all I can offer when it comes to these big events is, ultimately, simplifications. The precise details of who said what to whom and how others responded are way more complex and messy than how I tell it. History is, after all, merely the study of people in the past, and people then, like people now, are complicated, their lives filled with amazing details, and any renderings of their actions must always leave out colossal amounts of information. So bear with me as I bring a simplified narrative version of these events, and know that my fellow historians can and do spend many years debating exactly what follows. I honestly believe Edward had a problem with Godwin. I think Edward always had a problem with Godwin. Sure, he had him as his number one conciliary. He had married the man's daughter. But I honestly think Edward the Confessor, having been raised in Normandy, understood power like the Normans understood power. That Edward the Confessor worked to the old mantra, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And I believe that Edward saw Godwin as an enemy from the word go. Now, there are those who suggest otherwise, who emphasise that Edward had lost his actual family in the process of exile and that in some ways the Godwinson dynasty provided him with family and what followed was an accident, crossed wires along the way. I've seen some correctly point out that Godwin and his family had served Edward loyally for a decade and even Sven Godwinson's criminal actions were never directed against the crown, and what follows was purely a misunderstanding. And I've seen others argue convincingly that what follows was instigated by Godwin, because he saw the growing French contingent in English politics as a threat to him. All three of these theories are valid, and I just want to make you aware of them before I go on about what I think. Because for me, I think Edward had been working to cause a confrontation with Godwin. I think he'd been planning it for a while. And why do I think this? Because if you remember, a couple of chapters ago, I went on and on about the fleets of London, and especially the mercenary Danish fleet based in Lambeth. Lambeth, which most probably belonged to Godwin. Just remember those ships had only been stationed in London because the English in the city had been the most powerful opposition to Canute and the entire Danish occupation. They'd only been based there to keep a lid on London to maintain Canute's Anglo-Scandinavian status quo. Arthur Canute had raised that number to 94 ships worth of mercenaries, but that role had never been forgotten. I personally think they were Godwin's ace in the hole. If Edward ever got uppity or tried to usurp the balance of power in England, Godwin could call upon these mercenaries as his in-case-of-emergency-break-open-Vikings option. With that in mind, 
Now remember that I've been saying that for the best part of a decade, Edward had been paying them off. And it is right now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says about King Edward in the year 1050, quote, the same year he put all the Liesmen out of pay, unquote. The Liesmen, the mercenary fleet of Canute and Arthur Canute, was finally removed. Of course, Edward would not claim he was doing this because he was going to go after Godwin. Indeed, the way the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle described it, uh, it was because, quote, the same year King Edward abolished the Dane Guild with King Ethelred imposed. That was in the 39th year after it had begun. That tribute harassed all the people of England so long as is above written, and it was always paid before other imposts, which were levied indiscriminately and vexed men variously, unquote. So yeah, Edward was getting rid of these ships for economic reasons. Honest governor. So then when he finally removed this fleet, who just happened to be Godwin's backup, we now suddenly see a series of awkward events that turn tension into conflict. And while it could just be a series of unfortunate events where some see happenstance, I see intent. Where some see providence, I see causality. I believe Edward could begin to move against this English godfather. Of course, he was moving slowly, carefully. He'd waited nearly a decade to strike out at Godwin. Why rush things now? Besides, there was enough to go on to keep him and Godwin occupied. Such as, well, a Viking leader from Ireland landed with 36 ships, quote, and thereabout did harm with the help of Griffin, the Welsh king, unquote. So that's a reference to the Welsh warlord and potentate, Griffith ap Llewellyn. And here we see a joint Viking and Welsh fleet attacking the west of England and probably needing the forces of Earl Sven Godwinson to stop them. This would not be the last time Griffin ap Llewellyn teamed up with the Sporan Vikings of the Irish Sea, but these future attacks can wait until they arrive. The fleet of England was now charged to do what it was supposed to do, and no doubt Edward sent some ships off to go and deal with it. But it is worth noting that soon after that, events began to spiral out of control. And the sequence of events originated with something to do with London. Around the middle of June of the year 1051, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says came, quote, Archbishop Robert hither over the sea with his Paul from Rome, one day before St. Peter's Eve, and he took up his archiepiscopal seat at Christchurch on St. Peter's Day, and soon after this went to the king, unquote. So Robert of Canterbury has just returned from Europe with his Paul, and he takes up his seat. He's now official archbishop, and then he travels to meet Edward at his court. And while not implicitly said, what then follows was for me the opening salvos of Edward's move against Godwin. Quote, Then came Abbot Spearhavak to him with the king's written seal, to the intent that he should consecrate him bishop o'er London. But the archbishop refused, saying the pope had forbidden him, unquote. Now, a few months previous to this, the pope at the time, Pope Leo, had clamped down and condemned on the practice of people paying secular powers to gain clerical positions. It was a big thing for Leo at the time. And Archbishop Robert clearly used this as an excuse to prevent recognising spear havoc. And with this, the unspoken accusation that it only gained this position because it had paid off Godwin. Certainly, it could be that spear havoc was only there because he was there to make a new crown and 
maybe oversee the cutting of coin dyes in London, and maybe even helping adorn the new palace Edward had started building for himself. Having been refused once, Spear Havoc probably figured the new archbishop was doing this to make a point, so he could just look like he was being tough on behalf of the Pope. So, quote, then went the abbot to the archbishop again for the same purpose, and there demanded episcopal consecration. But the archbishop obstinately refused, repeating that the Pope had forbidden him. Then went the abbot to London and sat at the bishop for it. The king had given him with his full leave all the summer and the autumn, unquote. So we have a standoff. Spear Havoc felt he should be bishop, but supposedly Robert was being obstinate. One could also say he was doing exactly what was told him by the Pope. The various versions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle disagree as to who was to blame. Was Robert truly being obstinate? Was Spear Havoc being insulted? Or was he really a crooked little goldsmith who may or may not have bought his position of abbot and now Bishop of London from Godwin? We do not know. I have seen historians like Tom Lysons, who I really respect, suggest this was a conflict between Edward and the Archbishop over this. And this is based on the idea that Spear Havoc was one of Edward's factions. If he was one of Godwin's supporters, however, you get a very different reading. Rather than pick a side in who's to blame in this row, I urge the listener to think the worst of both sides here. Robert was upsetting the status quo, but it could be that Spear Havoc was a greedy little ass who had bribed his way to the position of bishop. And let's look at what Spear Havoc does next as a measure of his personality. Does he accept the rightful ruling of the Archbishop of Canterbury? No, he declares it fake news and occupies the bishopric of London against the will of the Archbishop. And this, for me, is something he could only have done if he was kind of muttering, Godwin's going to hear about this. Now, I base that on later actions, which I believe expose Spear Havoc as ultimately one of Godwin's factions. But at the same time, I do not think Archbishop Robert was acting out of diligence for the Pope's instructions. He was clearly and deliberately picking a fight. Godwin's man had not been given the job he should have been given. Godwin was no doubt thinking, this is something I should have a word with the king about. And while it seems trivial in the big scale of problems facing the kingdom, the timing of it is too precise because something seems to be in motion. Just remember, Archbishop Robert had returned from seeing the Pope and had travelled across the lands of Europe on his way back. He was seeing old friends and influential men and leaders across the channel. Edward was a power with a strong navy, so there was diplomacy needed. But as well as that, Robert would have met men who knew King Edward growing up, friends of his, the Normandy mob. And I believe something was discussed, plans were hatched. And very soon after Robert was back in place, quote, Then during the same year came Eustace who had the sister of King Edward to wife from beyond sea, unquote. So this is King Edward's brother-in-law. Now there's a whole mammoth backstory about this guy and the reasons for turning up, and some historians feel strongly that he was coming over because of events back where he was based and what was going on in the politics around there. But for me, I can't help but feel there is something more to his visit, something very direct to do with what was going on in Edward's head. The records say he arrived, quote, soon after the bishop, and went to the king, and have spoke to him, whatever he chose, unquote. So this Eustace turns up, and he turns up with a bunch of guys, and they have a private meeting with the king, and then he left. And the wording is really interesting. Eustace doesn't explain or tell anybody why he's here or what he's doing. 
he just sat down and had what appears to be a rather intense chat with King Edward. Quote, he then went homeward. When he came to Canterbury eastward, there he took a riposte with his men, unquote. So this Norman Knight Eustace is with a bunch of armed retainers and he and them leave the king and travel to Canterbury to consult with Robert. And then he was supposedly going home. Because after that, quote, he proceeded to Dover, unquote. And Dover's an interesting place. On paper, it was under the jurisdiction of the new Archbishop of Canterbury. But Godwin was the Earl of the region and had some secular influence in it. And Robert's appointment may have undermined things. It may be causing tension. And here comes this Eustace to the town. And we have evidence to suggest he was intending to... Well, he was intending to cause trouble. Quote, When he was about a mile or more on this side Dover, he put on his breastplate, and so did all his companions, and they proceeded to Dover, unquote. So, then as now, while turning up on Dover on a Friday night about throwing out time, does make you think you should carry mace for protection, you certainly don't turn up armed to the teeth and covered in armour, unless you knew there was going to be a fight. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle then records, quote, When they came hither, they resolved to quarter themselves wherever they lived. Then came one of his men, who would lodge at the house of the master of a family against his will. But having wounded the master of the house, he was slain by the other. Then was Eustace quickly upon his horse, and his companions upon theirs, and having gone to the master of the family, they slew him on his own hearth. Then going up to the Burrowood, they slew both within and without more than twenty men." Unquote. So, this Norman knight and blood relative of King Edward, Eustace, wrecks over and kills a bunch of folks. Let us be straight, he and his guys had donned armour before they got there. It was clear they were looking to start a fight or expecting one, and then they'd murdered people, but crucially one of the Normans had been killed. So what follows? Eustace turns back and raced to the king over in his court in Gloucester and gave him his side of the story. As Tom Lyson says, it's always a good idea to get to the king first. Edward goes ballistic. This man and his party were guests of the king. This incident diminishes the idea of royal protection. So Edward, quote, sent off Earl Godwin, bidding him go into Kent with hostility to Dover, unquote. Yep, he wanted Godwin to wreck Dover in punishment for their attacking his visitors from Normandy. Some say this was almost probably just Edward setting up Godwin. But there was a precedent for this kind of thing. Anyone from London, and listeners to this podcast, may well remember the incident we had back in chapter 26, when some lads who worked for the Bishop of Rochester beat up one of the favourites, the King Ethelred, and it turned up with the Fjord and ravaged Rochester. So he was clearly ordering Godwin to do this. But based on what follows, I think he knew he was being unreasonable. I think Edward knew he was provoking Godwin to act and commit himself show his loyalty to the king, and sack Dover for punishment for their act upon a foreign visitor, or defy the king. For me, this was deliberate, a way to remind Godwin that Edward was the power to be obeyed. For others it wasn't, but even they accept what follows shows a catastrophic breakdown in trust between the two men. Both parties now unsure about the intention of the other. Two sides were not talking, and in the silence you can't tell the true motivations of the other. So worst case scenarios get automatic credence. Maybe they're correct. I must keep reminding you of that option. But for me, this was Edward flexing his muscles. And basically Godwin refused to attack Dover 
at the king's behest. At this point, who had caused the row in Dover was no longer important. All that mattered now was Godwin had refused the king. This was going to escalate real quick. Now, it's typical for people hearing about this and reading about this to choose a size in this row, but please don't. Both men are creatures of a similar type. Was asking Godwin to attack Dover a terrible request? Yes! But lest we forget, Hartigan had done the same to Worcester, and lest we forget, Godwin's the kind of man who'd blinded Edward's brother. No one here is a saint. Everyone here is a godfather. So Godwin knew what was about to go down, and he refused the king's bidding. For me, this is exactly what Edward had wanted. Quote, Then sent the king after all his council, and bid them come to Gloucester near the aftermath of St. Mary. Unquote. So that August, Godwin was summoned to Gloucester. I believe Godwin knew what would happen. He'd refused a direct order from the king. Yes, that was treason. The summons was a trap. Sure, even now Godwin could probably have talked his way out of this. Sure, he just had to accept he was wrong. It wasn't unsolvable. Yet, Edward had set the ground for this confrontation, and Godwin was being forced into a corner. And Godwin wasn't willing to back down. Quote, Whereupon he began to gather forces all over his earldom, and Earl Sven, his son, over his, and Harold, his other son, over his earldom, and they assembled all in Gloucestershire at Langtry, a large and innumerable army, all ready for battle against the king, unquote. So it was on. Godwin had raised his forces. In fact, the entire Godwinson family was up for a scrap. A huge force of their loyalists were now gathered. And Godwin revealed that actually this wasn't a boat out of the blue. He was either expecting this confrontation or the recent actions of the king and the growing number of French supporters had been sticking in his craw because Godwin and his family sent demands to the king that, quote, Eustace and his men were delivered to them handcuffed and also the Frenchmen that were in the castle, unquote. The Frenchmen in the castle? Well, some historians feel they're demanding the arrest of the men who were trashed over. But writers at the time believed this referred to... Frenchman the king had placed in Sven Godwinson's lands, and this demand was driven by him. Basically, Godwin's response to the king's ambush politically was to escalate things, and amass a huge force led by him and his two eldest boys. Godwin knew he couldn't go after the king, but he could take out his French allies. Those Normans around him were making Edward bold. Take them out, and Edward would get back into his box. Godwin sent his demand on September 1st that year. The king's response... Quote, he sent after Earl Leofric and north after Earl Seward and summoned their retainers. At first they came to him with moderate aid, but when they found out how it was in the south, they sent north over all their earldom and ordered a large force to help off their lord. So did Ralph also see his earldom. Then came they all to Gloucester, to the aid of the king, though it was late. So unanimous were they in defence of the king, they would seek Godwin's army if the king desired it, unquote. So yeah. Northumbria and Mercia had sent their forces, originally small, but seeing how serious it was, they'd sent reinforcements. And before Godwin had struck, they reinforced the king. Edward had swayed to get everyone who was on a Godwin to side with him. Quickly, two vast armies amassed in Gloucester. This was it, a big battle, and yet the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the fight never happened. Quote, but some prevented that because it was unwise that they should come together. For in the two armies, there was almost all that was noblest in England. They therefore prevented this, that they may not leave the land at the mercy of her foes whilst engaging in a destructive conflict betwixt ourselves." 
unquote. If I can be honest as a narrator, there were two godfathers fighting over who was top dog. I think both Edward and Godwin were down for it, but not anyone else was. Those who didn't want to see themselves having to engage in a fight. Here, we were on the brink of an actual civil war. And the neutrals had sided with the king, but didn't want to see it get harsher. England faced threats from Vikings and other nations, so a huge battle screwing up the fjord and the ship's fjord was something nobody wanted. But an impasse played into Edward's hands. Maybe he'd miscalculated how strong Godwin's response would be, so having been prevented in Plan A, he unleashed Plan B. The state responded quickly, quote, they issued proclamations throughout to London, whither all the people were summoned over this north end in Sewardsildom and in Leofix and also elsewhere, and Earl Godwin was to come thither with his sons to conference, unquote. Yes, London suddenly found itself at the front line of the factions of England coming together to decide the fate of the nation. There was to be a sit-down of the Godfathers. The date was set for September 24th, the autumn equinox. Day and night would be equal and justice would also hang in the balance. This was the first time London was to be the centre of an entirely political conflict that had repercussions for the whole nation. Sure, it had been the nexus of resistance for foreign invaders a few times before, but nothing like this had ever happened before. Well, it wouldn't be the last time it would play such a role for the record. To London then came the great and the good, the factions of the kingdom all coming together to decide the fate of the nation. From Northumbria, from Mercia and from Wessex, all the land converged on London. The issue now wasn't what may or may not happened in Dover. This was about Godwin bending the knee formally to the king. He was accused of treason and Edward was taking no chances. Before the meeting, so in the closing days of that September, Edward summoned the fjord from both north of London and south of London, as well as probably the London fjord itself. Godwin turned up in the south. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, They came as far as Southwark, and very many of them from Wessex, unquote. So for me, that says that was probably his estates in Lambeth as where they were assembling. The problem for Godwin, Edward had arranged all of this. He had the drop on him. This was Edward's ambush at Southwark. He had arranged this politically, and Godwin was walking into Edward's trap. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that Godwin's forces were being crippled as, quote, his army continually diminished more and more, for they bound over to the king all the thanes that belonged to Earl Harold, his son, unquote. So what did I mean by that? Well, Edward had summoned the fjord, the king's call for the army of the land to serve him which meant that the forces that followed Godwin and Harold, for example, they were duty-bound to report to the king for duty. And it is clear that Earl Harold of East Anglia obeyed this rule, and thus his numbers diminished. But you know who isn't mentioned as losing men? His brother Sven. Sven Godwinson was not allowing his men serve the king. They were here to serve him. But Sven was only back in England after being restored by Edward. He was on probation, and this violated the terms of his probation. The nobles of England, quote, outlawed Earl Sven, unquote. Sven realised the whole family had walked into a trap, and so that night he fled. And, quote, in the morning the king held a council, unquote, and Godwin was ordered to present himself. Godwin seems to have feared attack and refused, demanding hostages to provide safe conduct. But he was in no position to make such a demand. 
This wasn't a negotiation between rival factions here. This was technically a legal affair. Edward had arranged it so that this whole moment was a trial. Did Godwin admit he had broken the law by disobeying King Edward in his request? Now, there's a moment that follows that distracts everyone. Supposedly during negotiations, Edward sent word he would allow Godwin safe conduct if he would bring back his brother, Ilfred, alive. Now, for many writers, this moment reveals that Edward resented Godwin this whole time and that he was beyond any reasoning and this whole thing was revenge for the blinding and killing of his brother. But that misses what Edward was actually doing here. Edward was destroying Godwin's defence before the trial could even begin. Think about it. Godwin was turning up and he was going to look at the Witangamot and he was going to act like he was the upset party. The king was asking him to do something unforgivable by attacking Dover. No king should ever ask his men to do such things. Godwin is just being moral. Can't people see he is the innocent man here? But by mentioning the late Ilfred, what the king was doing was very publicly reminding Godwin of what he'd done to the king's own brother. But that Godwin had gotten away with it because his defence was basically, I was only obeying orders. King Harold had demanded it. And he'd used this excuse for years. All right, says Edward. Then if murdering my brother was only obeying orders, and since your entire defence rested on the fact that when the king gave you an order you were just doing what they said because they were king, then why are you saying no to attacking Dover? You have your order, and based on what you've been saying for years, you always obey your king. Well, maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe, as you're saying now, you had a choice, in which case you did murder Ilfred, yeah? It was simple but brilliant, said openly before the court and conveyed to Godwin by messenger, exposing Godwin's hypocrisy in all of this. This wasn't about the rights and wrongs of the matter. This was about power. Who was in charge? The arguments Godwin were using were just grandstanding. It was so good a response that Godwin supposedly flipped the table he was sat at. Godwin knew the ambush had worked. That night he fled with his family as estates to Bosham, and the very next day, the Wicandamont declared Godwin, quote, an outlaw with his whole army, himself and his wife, and all his sons, unquote. Edward had arranged for Godwin to walk into a political ambush, and Godwin had taken the bait. Godwin knew he couldn't fight his way to victory. Edward had him, and so he did the only thing he could. Godwin and his family fled. As posse thundered after them, Godwin and his sons escaped England. Their power broken here in Southwark. We can only imagine the hurried discussions held between the Godwin sons as they rode to safety. Earl Godwin had been exiled. He and his entire family were on the run. King Edward seemed to have won a great victory. He was now the power over England. No one was around to rival him. Several things happened in quick succession. The lands, estates and holdings of the Godwin family were seized by the state. Many parts were given to loyalists, but not all. Edward kept most of it. Then he placed his wife, Godwin's daughter Edith, into a convent with only one servant to serve her. Edward was not the kind of man to seek a divorce, but she was clearly failing as a wife. I mean, she may be highly intelligent, well-read, and with a crucial weapon in his ability to hold the kingdom together. And she was able to navigate his temperamental and condescending personality well, but 
She had not gotten pregnant, and that while that may have been Edward's fault, this is the 11th century, so she was blamed, and she was dumped as a bride of Christ, which left Edward room to maybe annul the marriage and marry another young trophy bride to produce an heir to the throne. Meanwhile, a new alliance of men were profiting from the fall of the Godwins. Old Earl Leofric of Mercia was granted some of Godwin's land, along with a man called Odder, an old and trusted type who had served both Canute and Ethelred. East Anglia was given to Leofric's son Elgar, and the knives were out for the members of Godwin's faction. And over in London, Spear Havoc, the petulant Godwinite, saw which way the wind was blowing, so acted decisively. He took the golden gems King Edward had given him to make a new crown, stuffed them into a bag, hopped on a ship down at the Billingsgate and sailed away, never to be seen again. He was, I imagine, for London the symbol of the Godwins, or respectable-like, but, you know, scratch below the surface, they're just a bunch of crooks. A new Bishop of London was appointed, a man called William. He was one of the King's chaplains and also a Norman. And while he may not have been as high profile as the bishops London was used to, they could be fairly sure he wasn't a thief. Yet bottom line was, Edward the Confessor had won. Edward was the godfather of England. However, like Michael Colleone in the film The Godfather, there was a price to pay for this success. Godwin of Wessex was not done yet. Yes, his family had been outmaneuvered, and outplayed. Yes, they'd been forced to flee and they were in exile, but they were the Godwins and they had survived exile before. Edward had won the battle, but he had not won the war. The revenge of Earl Godwin was coming. And London may have thought they'd just avoided seeing a full-scale battle in Southwark, but they had no idea that something much, much worse was coming that London was only a few months away from finding itself under siege. And we'll cover that in the final part of a Godfather trilogy. That'll be out within the next week or so. Thanks for listening.